there are two types of people in the world. Ones who are good at directions. And ones who would get lost coming home from the grocery store because they moved that landmark you depended on. You know who you are. I won't have you raise your hands, but if you're not sure which one you are, then you're the bad, you're the bad directions one, trust me. We host a young adult group at our house on Wednesday nights, and one of, uh, one of our attendees, uh, Feli, who is actually singing up here, there she is right in the front row, um, I'll never forget, we got done with the, we got done with the, with the lesson, it was time to go, and she pulled out her phone frantically, looked at it, went, oh, phew. And I was like, oh, no, I thought there was, like, you know, a something wrong, or she was waiting on some really important news. She goes, no, I still have power on my phone. It means I can get home tonight. <laughs> I was like, what? She's like, yeah, I don't know how to get home. I need, my G I need the GPS on my phone in order to get home. Now, again, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but some of you are like, what's wrong with that? That's my, whole, that's my whole life, is I need that phone in order to get me where I'm going. Without it, you're not able to get home. It's really the same when it comes to biblical letters. When we, when we go through a biblical letter like this one in Galatians, and Galatians is a, is a shorter one compared to others, but even with this one, when we've been going through it over the course of an entire season, this is almost close to two months now we've been looking at Galatians, you can tend to start to lose kind of track of where we are in the argument. There's this whole way that Paul is shaping this argumentation, not in a, a, a combative way, but, but truly in just logically explaining what is going on and what he feels he needs to talk about with the Galatians. Galatians can be a hard book to navigate because it is a carefully constructed argument that builds on itself. And it can be easy kind of to lose the forest for the trees to read verses in Galatians in isolation and kind of lose where they fit in the, the general overview of where we are in the letter. So really to understand where we're going, you have to understand where we've been. And, and this is part, we're, we're starting to move into chapter 4 and we're going to start kind of making a turn in the letter. It's going to get more practical in nature, but this is one of these sort of highlight passages that kind of sums up everything that he's talked about thus far. So we have to look back before we can look forward. So if you have notes, if you have your Bible, get ready. Here we go. Let's take a look back on where we've been, where we've traveled thus far that gets us kind of to this pinnacle moment right here. We kicked off the sermon looking at the impetus for the letter. The gospel was at stake. The gospel was at stake. The makeup of the churches in Galatia included both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. They had been brought into fellowship through the gospel. The belief and the idea and the conviction that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us through his death and resurrection, Jesus took on our sin, and we took on his righteousness, and therefore are declared justified in God's sight, apart from anything else that we could do. We were rescued. We were, as I said, we were like that, uh, my daughter jumping into the pool and sinking to the bottom and needing someone to come and rescue her. It's absolutely nothing that we've performed, no obedience that we do, no law that we follow that allows us to be justified in God's side through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, giving us his righteousness 
and him, or him giving us his righteousness and we giving him our sin. This is the gospel. But there were some from the Jewish side who had come teaching a different gospel, as Paul put it. One that involved continuing to adhere to the parts of, uh, to the, continuing to adhere to parts of the Mosaic law in order to have salvation. Paul proclaims that there is no other gospel, and it's the title of our series, there is no other gospel than the one that he preached, salvation through Jesus Christ apart from works of the law. So that by the end of the first chapter and into chapter two, Paul begins to defend this gospel. He appeals to them personally. He reminds them of his high status in Judaism and that he had no earthly motivation to accept this gospel because he was winning at the old game. Why change the rules, he says, of a game that I was winning in order to switch to a new set of rules in which I am the loser? He said, no, 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 it's not because of some personal appeal. He then appeals to them communally, reminding them on multiple times that this gospel was sanctioned publicly by the leaders of the church. And then he appeals to Peter individually, reminding him that he was out of line in discriminating against the Gentiles. Then we move here to chapter 3, which is what we read read the end of chapter 3. But in chapter 3, Paul then furthers his argument by using the Old Testament itself to show them that this gospel had been revealed from the very beginning. This actually isn't new rules, he says. These are the rules that God has set forth since the very beginning, since Abraham, your father, the founding father of the Israel people. Abraham believed this promise that right standing before God would come through faith and not the law. And it was credited to him as righteous. In Genesis 15, 400 years before the law was even given, God preached the gospel to Abraham through a covenant. And this faith promise was given to Abraham and then promised to a single offspring who would eventually ratify this covenant permanently in his blood. God pledged that through Abraham and this offspring, all nations would be blessed, not just Israel. And when God makes a promise, he doesn't change or alter it. So Paul says, like, listen, even in your Old Testament, even your founding father heard the gospel and believed it. This isn't some new thing we're just throwing out of left field. This is something that has started from the beginning. Therefore, as Jeremy talked about last week, the law was never intended to save, but to teach. It was a temporary guardian, a tutor that managed Israel and taught them who God was and who they were in relation until the time came when the offspring would come and the promise of faith would be revealed. And now, in our passage, but now that faith has come. So, so you see how the arguments there. Hey, Abraham, your own father, right? He was preached the gospel. He believed it. It was credited to him as righteous. A covenant in Genesis 15 was cut in which God promised that in his blood and the offspring to come would be the one who would ratify this covenant permanently. And that, and that Abraham, through you, all nations are going to be blessed, not just Israel. Israel is just simply going to be managed. They're going to be taught what God is like until the day the fullness of time would come and then that offspring would come back and ratify the covenant in his blood, and all would be welcomed in because that 
was the point since the beginning. That was always the plan, says Paul. And now we get to our passage and he says, and now that faith has come. But now faith has come. And the result is this. In Jesus Christ, the offspring, in Jesus Christ, we are all sons of God through faith. But now that faith has come, he says, in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith faith. Now, let's take a moment for a second to really kind of narrow down on this phrase, sons of God, because this sons of God phrase is actually a specific thing in the New Testament. It actually has its history going all the way back to Genesis. And so understanding what it means will really give us a a little more flavor of what Paul means when he says we're all sons of God. Now, first off, in your Bibles, it might be translated as children of God, And the reason for this is because this term really is gender neutral. The nuanced meaning of sons in Hebrew is really children. So women are included just as much as men. So you're going to hear me say sons of God and sons this entire message because we need to actually, that's a specific term that has specific meaning. But ladies, no, you're in it. You're you're part of this thing, right? Later on, he's even going to say neither male nor female. Right? So he's going, to be, he's going to be very specific that this is not just a male thing. But sons in that culture in that day had a very specific meaning and purpose that we need to dive into. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to take a little journey here. We're going to see how this term, sons of God, became a real phrase, a real specific idiom in that world. And it flows all the way from the beginning of Genesis. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we have Bibles there in the, in, the, in the seats in front of you. You can pull that out and come with me to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 5, right at the beginning there, verse 1. And if you remember, what's leading up to this is God has created male and female. He's created Adam and Eve. He's created in his own image and his own likeness. And so Genesis 5 is going to be picking up on that idea as it explains Adam and Eve's lineage from here. It says this, when God created man, he made him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. That's referring back to Genesis 1 and 2. He created the male and female and he blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. So again, man in Hebrew is more like humanity, right? So he's talking about male and female. It's all the same. He called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. Ah, that's familiar because that's what God did. God created Adam in his own likeness, and then Adam created Seth in his own likeness and in his own image, and he named him Seth. Okay, so God created Adam, and Adam created Seth. So the rabbis, as they're reading this, they surmise that if Seth is the son of Adam, then Adam must be the son of God. And in fact, in the New Testament, it picks up on this. We won't go to it. We won't have you go to it. But in Luke chapter 3, they actually lay a a genealogy of, of, of everything leading up to Christ. And when you get to the end, it actually has this exact same phraseology. It says, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
And so this idea began to pick up in the Israelites' heads that, ah, I see, see, we come from the line of Seth. Israel comes from this line of Seth. And it appears that as we go on, we are all, all connected to the very first person, which is Adam. And from Adam, he is the one who is the son of God. Now, if you've got your place in Genesis, just flip one, one, uh, one book to the right. Flip over to Exodus. Exodus 4. This theme continues throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus 4, God is instructing Moses on what to say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is trying his best to uh, keep this Israel as a separate thing. And Moses' job is to kind of bring this people out and to show them that you are this new people. And so how would God be able to describe to the Israelite people and to Pharaoh why these people are special? And in Exodus 4, verses 22, and then a little bit into 23, it says, Israel, this is what you're to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Ah, so the rabbis would read that and go, yeah, that, that makes sense, because Adam was the son of God. He had Seth, and then our people came from the lineage of Seth. And now even here, when God is calling his people out and making them a distinct people now, this is the same language he uses. God is described as the one who's fathered Israel. The Lord called Israel into existence and out of slavery. Israel, then, is God's own son. Israel comes from the line of Seth, the sons of God, and it only makes sense now that God calls all of his people the sons of God. One more. Flip over to Hosea now. Hosea, you say? We never go there. Exactly. Let's go to Hosea for a few minutes. Small little uh, prophet towards the end of the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 1. So even the prophets begin picking this up. So in Genesis, God says it. Then in Exodus, God tells him, this is how I want Israel to be identified. It's my son. And the prophets pick up this same nuance. And in Hosea 1, verse 10, it says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said of them, Sons of the living God. So Hosea picks this up. So again, if you're a reader, you're going, okay, yeah, this all, this all, this all makes sense. From, from the very beginning in Genesis, our, one of our forefathers, uh, Abraham, and then into Seth, well, well, Adam into Seth, sons of God, then Abraham comes, and then an ex, and Moses comes, and then Exodus were called that, and then even the prophets. And there's other examples here too. These are just a few. The prophets begin picking up this language of it. In Judaism, sons of God was an identity for Israel alone, the righteous, the family of God, the chosen ones. It was an insider term to distinguish God's chosen people. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if back in those days, they, it was used actually as a term to kind of bring the Gentiles down when there was arguments and fights within the church. Oh, oh you Gentiles, you, you don't want to do Hanukkah this year, huh? Okay, well, we really should. I mean, we're the sons of God and all, so I understand why you might not, but, but we're the sons of God, so we're going to do it. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, you brought ham to the church potluck? Well, 
I mean, that's cool for you and all, but we Jews, we follow God and we are his sons and all. So, you know, we're, we just, we live to a higher standard than that. It's actually a pejorative term, my guess is, to, to bring people down. And so in the, a brilliant way, Paul says right here, hey, listen, now that we're all in Christ, we're, we're all the sons of God. We're all the sons of God. Every one of us. In fact, we see it, he goes on, right? Then he goes on and he lets them know, therefore there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all sons of the living God. Sons of the living God. And in fact, as we move into chapter 4, Paul's even going to push this a little more. So flip over back to Galatians 4, if you will, if you're still there in Hosea. He's actually going to make this point even further to remind the Jews and the Gentiles now that in Christ, in the gospel, you are all sons. You're all brought in. He says this in chapter 4, right at the beginning. Galatians 4, 1 through 3. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under a guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what does that mean? What, what is Paul trying to get at here? This, this is what he says. He goes, hey, let me take this a step further. Uh, think about real father-child relationships for a second. Like, let's, let's, let's go to a practical real-world example, right? Let's think about it in terms of a real father and a real child. When a child is young, he says, even though they are an heir, they don't receive the inheritance right away, right? We don't give our full inheritance to our three-year-old, to our five-year-old, to our nine-year-old. There is a time when a child is young that even though they are the heir, even though they are technically really the owner of everything, that they don't get the inheritance right away. What they need is to be managed and guarded and taught, Paul says. So functionally speaking, he goes on, even though they own it all, they are really no different than a slave. Right? They're, they, b- between the child and the slave, they're both receiving their... their their, their provisions, they're both living under the same household. We just know that we're different because eventually, when the time comes, that kid is going to get the inheritance while another kid isn't. But functionally speaking, Paul says, when they are young, there's really no difference between them. They, they don't have the freedom to live into this inheritance that they will eventually someday be given. There is no freedom that they have while they are still young. My children, my very own child, children, they're heirs of the entire long empire. <laughs> One day it will all be theirs. In a real sense, they own everything I have. They do. Mia, you own everything that I have. She's looking, she's like, you're crazy, Dad. In a very real way, she owns everything I have. She is an heir to our empire. But they don't get it yet. You don't get it yet, Mia, sorry. You don't get it yet, right? She needs to be managed. She needs to be guarded. She needs to be cared for, right? She, She is not, functionally speaking, she has no freedoms right now. 
She doesn't get to make any financial decisions. She doesn't get any real, she gets no responsibilities on that level whatsoever. She's an heir of this empire, but she doesn't get it yet. And so functionally speaking, she's no different than any other, right? In terms of my inheritance, she's no different than any other, but a time will come. Hopefully not too far, hopefully long, you know, long enough, but a time will come where the heirs of my estate will receive their inheritance. A time will come. But until then, he says, functionally speaking, and I know the word slave has baggage tied to it, but functionally speaking, they are no different than, than they have no freedoms. My children have no freedoms in this way yet. They need to be guarded and they need to be managed. And this is what Paul says is what Israel was. Israel was given the promise. They were heirs of this promise. But until the time had come, they were like children. They didn't get the inheritance now. And so what Paul says, and he's talking about himself here. He uses we language because he comes from that side. So he says, we were slaves. We were enslaved to the elementary principles. We, we had no freedoms in and of himself. It's only when the time had come where we receive the same inheritance that the Gentiles are now going to receive as well. So he's actually arguing, we even, in the Old Testament, we even, before Christ, didn't really have many, much advantage when it came to it. We were children with a promise that yet was not fulfilled. We were waiting for the offspring to come. Does this make sense? So he's driving this point home again and again. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free. All are one in Christ Jesus. If you're a Jew, you weren't originally a son. You were more like a slave. And if you were a Gentile, you weren't originally part of this thing at all. But now that faith has come, in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. Ah, he uses his own old, their own Old Testament to prove this point to them. And the picture Paul uses of this wonderful, beautiful picture is that of adoption. Adoption. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, the offspring, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, he says we there, both sides, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now adoption was a widely practiced uh, thing in the, in, the old, in, the, in the Old Testament in an ancient world. They understood what adoption, and really adoption back then looked very similar to what adoption looks like now. The person adopted was taken out of their previous condition. All old debts were paid, and they started a new life as a child in the family, whose name they took and whose inheritance they were entitled to. And this becomes a picture of the gospel. Because in the gospel, we are taken out of our previous condition as slaves or orphans to sin. Our debts are paid, and we start a new life as children in the family whose name we take on and whose inheritance we are entitled. Paul continues, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba, Father is a connection. Abba is Aramaic. The father, that word father there is then Greek. 
So in one way, what he's doing, he's saying, Abba, you Jews, and Father, you Greeks, he's your father. He's using that term uh, specifically. He's using their language and their language combined. Abba, Father. But this word Abba has such deep connection and root. The word Abba was actually a term for familiar intimacy. It is reserved for the most intimate bond between parent and child. One scholar, his name is Dr. Timothy George, he had this to say on it. The word Abba is a term of familial intimacy that can still be heard through the Middle East today as a word to address and used by the young children to greet their father. Abba is an Aramaic expression that may have actually derived originally from the first syllables uttered by an infant. It's that, it's that deep and it's that profound and that's intimate that it's actually the very words that an infant perhaps would babble. And this is where the word even comes from. To hold your child in your hand or hold your niece and nephew in your hand as they babble and start to say your name this deep, intimate relationship with the Father. But there's also another a part to this term, and actually Paul gets to it in this next verse, verse 7. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You, you actually have, uh, you have a stake in the inheritance. You are an heir of this, all that the Father has. Not only does the word Abba connote intimacy, but it also has legal importance. The word appears in legal texts in Jewish literature as a designation used by grown children in claiming their inheritance. You would actually have to go before when a father died, and in order to claim your inheritance, you would have to prove and say that this is my Abba. And that word was so important, and that word was so, uh, was so specific to your relationship with the Father. It's one of the ways that, it, they, that you could prove that you were the child, you were the heir, because he was my Abba. Adoption was a legal act just as much as an intimate act, attested by witnesses. It was customary for a will, actually, to be prepared in conjunction with the adoption to formally recognize the inheritance rights back in those days. So you would actually, when you went before the, the council, when you went before a legal, uh, a legal representation in those days, you would actually come with the child and you would come with the will as well that showed that this child is now a part of your estate. And so as much as it's a deep, intimate connection, there's actually a lot of legal, uh, there's a lot of legal support to say that this adoption is final legal aired. The love and the legal at the same time. Now, I could explain it further. I could, I could go on and give you more examples of what adoption is. But for me, it would only be theoretical because I've never adopted anyone, and I've never been adopted. But as I thought about this week, man, we have so many wonderful stories in this church of just that. So many beautiful, wonderful, awe-inspiring stories of bringing someone into your family and making them your own. 
And so I, I felt like, I mean, I could blabber on a little bit more about this and, and give you some more, theo, you know, kind of theological or, or even um, theoretical, really, examples. But I thought, why not just hear another story from one of you to do that? So I know there are a lot of wonderful stories out here, but I want to welcome one of our elders, James Ringer, and his wife, Bethany Ringer, as they come and share their story of adoption. Give them a round of applause. Thank you guys so much for doing this and just sharing your story. So I think, I think, yeah, green means go. There you go. Um, I think, well, let's just start with, yeah, background to you guys. Um, your background of your story, your background of you, the pursuit of your family. And like we said, where we see the, where you guys saw the gospel kind of connected with, uh, with this idea. Sure, I'm James. This one. Yeah. Yes, it is. And this is my wife, Bethany. Uh, we have four boys, so I'll just give you a little background of, you know, some of you might not know my family. There's three of them in the back, kind of one's waving a little bit. Uh, Ethan's the oldest, then Elijah, Josiah, uh, and then Micah's downstairs. Um, and Ethan and Micah are adopted, and then Elijah and Josiah, they're twins, and they are biological, our biological children. I guess we're all biological. Uh, anyways. Um, yeah, so this, I'm going to try to, you know, keep this brief. This is my favorite part of the, of our adoption journey. Um, just when we, when we began uh, our journey in just pursuing adoption, um, we had always talked about, you know, that probably being part of our story, Lord willing. Uh, and so as we started to pursue adoption, um, of course, we didn't know everything that was going to be entailed in it, but we got connected with a Christian adoption agency, um, Bethany Christian Services, or I think in this area. Um, but anyways, um, during, you know, as, as we pursued it and learned more about it, uh, eventually we got to the part where, you know, we, had, we were given kind of this list of things um, uh, that we had to kind of talk about and, and work through in terms of what we'd be willing to take on in our adoption, what type of uh, child we'd be willing to adopt. Um, and I, I, I still kind of get chills. I, I feel like I haven't had many times in, in my life where I, I've heard God's voice very specifically telling me something. Uh, and this is the time where I feel like we both uh, felt this, where as we were kind of going through this list and being like, just kind of talking about, okay, what do we accept? What don't we accept? Um, it just spoke to me that, or to us, that we don't bring anything to the table when God looks at us and he sent his son Jesus to uh, die on the cross for our sins. Um, and how could I then in how God wants us to put our family, or how God wants to put our family together for us, how could I then kind of put qualifications on anything? Um, and so it was just this very um, deep picture of God's love for us that we wanted to portray uh, in, in our pursuit of adoption, where, you know, he loved us, um, while we were still sinners, he came, 
Christ came and died for us. Um, and yeah, I'm not calling myself Christ by any means, but uh, that love that he had for us, that unconditional love is just um, what we wanted the foundation of our family to be. Uh, and so we were basically like, God, you bring whatever child you want into our family, and he's richly blessed us with all four uh, of our boys. Mm. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that part. I think just that for me it also helped, like, um, I think it's true what James said, that I think in adoption and going through that process, it challenged me to really think about, like, if I really believe that the gospel is true, and I believe that God loves me in all of my sin, then I have to extend that to other people. And I think um, it helped and challenged me, too, that, like, I fail in that every day. And so, like, in the opposite way is, like, I'm parenting or adopting, but, like, is I'm adopted by God. And it helps me, like, I can't, I can't screw up enough so that God doesn't love me, right? So just, like, our kids, and we love them, um, and I pursue them, but just in the opposite way, too, that I like, can't screw up enough and that God loves me and died for me regardless of what I've done and I fail every day. So just mm. the extent of that. That's right, yeah. Talk a little bit about, so we talked about Abba being this, like, intimate phrase, right, of... And that love that, that grows, you know, in us. So, like, yeah, in, in, in the scope of all four of your boys, just that process of developing that kind of that intimate love for them um, and what that, what that journey looked like for you guys. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, of course, we love all our boys equally. And um, I, I think just, like, with probably all of your children, the way that love develops over time from the first time you hold them to this point today is different. It's a unique story for, for each one of uh, our boys as well. Um, I'll speak specifically to uh, our, um, when we adopted Ethan, and it actually kind of relates to Micah as well. Uh, the one thing that was kind of unique for me in that situation was, um, uh, I'll put it as I got to be the one that got up with them each <laughs> night to feed them. Because, uh, you know, Bethany nursed the, the twins. And so, um, not that I didn't get up during that time, but I didn't have as much of a role to play. <laughs> um, uh, but with Ethan and Micah, I, I got to be there. And I was just at the middle of the night, get up, hold them, feed them their bottle. Um, Ethan especially, um, the bond I was able to form with him was kind of a maybe love-hate relationship. He was a very slow eater, um, <laughs> but I got to spend a lot of quality... Which should surprise no one if you know him. <laughs> uh, which meant I got to spend a lot of quality time with him at night. Uh, some of the time I didn't want to be spending. Uh, but it really, is, again, is just the picture of, of how... God's love, how that love goes beyond um, measure. Um, now, God's love, of course, is perfect, and, and my feelings and stuff during that time weren't always perfect, um, but it really helped to develop that, that love, that sense of care, the sense of, you know, a little bit of discomfort for me is, is okay because I love you that much, and, and that really extends, of course, to all my, my boys, but that was kind of a, uh, kind of a special... Uh, I think that was maybe a little different with Ethan and, and Micah as well, because I would, you know, Micah was a faster eater, but um, I still uh, got up with him. And before you think that was mean of her to do it, I am very good at falling back asleep. 
Um, so it made sense for me to uh, be the one to get up so I could fall way back to sleep. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to that side of the... I mean, I know you were sleeping during the time, so you can't add too much to that specific story, but you might have a different one. Well, I'd say for me, one thing that hit home for me was actually a few weeks ago um, as Micah was coming back from surgery, and you were talking to me about that, and I could tell the look on your face that this was your son that you loved, and so there was all that went into worry and, ex and excitement to get it over with and worry and all of those things together, and it was like, as you were talking, I was like, yeah, this is a mom. This is a mom that loves her little boy. And you could just tell that love and intimacy and wanting it to go well and all of those things. So um, definitely. There, so there's like an intimate side. But then we talked about there's also like a legal side. And when you guys were explaining that process to me, um, I had no idea how formal the process was. So give a little bit of the backstory of that, of how it actually formally works in a legal sense that makes them your children. Yeah. I'm going to hand it to my legal expert. <laughs> I charge by the hour. Um, we, Micah came to live with us when he was three months old and Ethan was five months old. Um, and during that time, like they give you your child, that, right, their birth certificate that would have had their birth family's name on it. And obviously he's going to the doctor or school and they go by, well, not school, I guess they were babies, but you know, they go by their birth last names. Um, and then it, takes, it took for us around one and a half to two years to actually go to court to actually legally change their names and become part of our family. And actually, we did have to have a will written mm. as part of the process. So you still have to do that today. Wow. Um, and you have to show them, yeah, that, that you've done that. Um, and it's just, I didn't actually expect it to be as powerful as it was because, again, they'd been living with us for a year and a half to two years. So they certainly felt like our children at that point. Um, but you go before the judge, and actually the legal language that they use there in court states that they are now part of your inheritance, and they even use that word, and I remember just tearing up because I wasn't expecting it, and it really made me think of the Bible and just like yeah. how we're part of God's inheritance. Um, and just in that moment, like, they were not part of our inheritance five seconds before, right? And now they legally are. And I think of just when we put our faith in Christ, we're immediately blessed by that inheritance and part of God's family. And in that moment, they immediately were part of our family. They were immediately part of our inheritance. Um, it's not something, right, that takes time. And it's something that is forever. Um, you know, you swear to it that it's for forever. And God loves us and we are part of his family and that could never be taken away um and so i think in that moment it's really powerful and then you actually also a few months later you actually get a new birth certificate for the children that you adopt and like our names are now on their birth certificate and i think that that just also just shows like the part of our family that they are well obviously adoption is unique compared to the gospel and right our children have birth families and that doesn't change that but like they're now Yours. Ours. Yours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for that. Do you have anything? James, no, anything? No. You're good? You're out. <laughs> no. Thank you guys so much for sharing. And um, would you guys give them a round of applause? Thank you guys. Good job. <laughs> and as they are coming down, Van, you can come up. We're just going to reflect on that for a few minutes here. Um, they say when you preach, you have to define a purpose for your message. What do you want the person to do? What do you want your audience to do 
uh, as a result of the message? What's the application to move forward? But one of the, one of the purposes that is possible is just to simply sit and reflect and appreciate. There's no application that you run out to do something. There are plenty of applications in messages, but tonight and today, this morning, um, I just want us to reflect and appreciate that we have a father who has adopted us. Whether we're a slave or an orphan, Christ has done it. In fact, over my sabbatical last summer, um, this passage was an important one for me as I was grieving and processing my own father uh, who died about a year and a half ago. Um, And as I I was really thinking through my dad, uh, the intimacy that I had with him, I had no doubt that my dad loved me and was proud of me. He was my Abba. Um, But now, interesting, I'm experiencing the legal side of it as I'm literally now receiving his inheritance as an heir. So I'm, I'm in some ways, and I've never, you never prepare yourself for that, but you rec- I'm actually receiving tangibly the inheritance of my father and knowing that he loved me like that. And I had this great example of what a real father looks like, but over my sabbatical, one of the things that I walked away with, one of the strongest communications that God said to me was, but now it's time for me to be fully your father. So he's calling me into a deeper intimacy with him. He wants me to be his Abba. I had a good father, but I have a better father that I still have. And legally, I'm calling you to really fully believe in my inheritance more. That was another thing that I felt like God God wanted me to know. You have the inheritance. It's written on your birth certificate. Your name is changed believe and live into the appreciation of all that is coming for you. And we receive those rights as heirs, friends, because Christ gave them up on a cross. The intimacy that he had with his father was gone on a cross in which he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And for a time, even the legal application that was owed to our Lord on a cross was God. Galatians, earlier in Galatians 3, it reminded us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse himself. You see, we received these things because Christ gave them up for you and for me so that we might be adopted as sons. Friends, let's just sit with that this morning. Let's rise, let's worship. And let's just know that we are children of the living God. Father, would we just take the next few moments here and just know who we are. Know that you desire such intimacy with us, that you want to know us, that you want to be there like a child in the middle of the night being held and fed. The psalmists say, like a mother who's nursing a newborn child, so you are God to us. And may we sit confident in our inheritance that we are declared your child, our names are changed, the will has been passed, and we are heirs. 
through the love that you give to us, despite anything that we've done or accomplished. May we worship you now in spirit and in truth as children of the living God. And I pray if there's someone here who has not received your adoption, even now as they are sitting there, that they know that this is accessible to them now, that they might come into the family of God. Lord, be with us now. Help us to worship you. In your name I pray.